The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. ask you to follow in your Bible, I'm going to read from the 116th Psalm, relatively short psalm, perhaps not nearly as well known as some. My real concern is for one verse in this psalm, but I want you to see that verse, and I'm going to hope to show you that verse in the perspective and context in which it occurs. Listen as I read Psalm 116. I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me, and the anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, and therefore I said I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay I said all men are liars." How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Yes, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this word of yours. Help us to understand it well today. Amen. Most people don't think about the fact that in a time of grief, in a time of the severe loss of a loved one, it is possible for them to mismanage their grief and that whole situation to their detriment and to the harm even of people around them. For a glaring example of what I'm talking about, grief managed badly, I would point you to Queen Victoria of England in the mid-19th century. Victoria was a very young princess of England when she married a distant cousin, as royals do, Prince Albert of Germany. He was an intelligent man of high character and considerable ability. 
Being the husband of a queen isn't the easiest thing in the world. It's kind of an undefined sort of job where you you just behave yourself. But Albert proved a useful man. He was a useful advisor. He took on a number of state projects. He was actually quite an advocate for the United States and, and soothed over some situations where Britain and the U.S. might have had a, a more of a struggle if he hadn't been there. They had a happy marriage. Together they had, I believe it was eight children, and they loved each other very dearly. But then at the age of 42 came Albert's death to typhoid rather suddenly. Victoria's reaction as queen was to be totally paralyzed by sorrow. For three years, she made no public appearances. She spent much of that time at the castle in Balmoral, Scotland, not even in London or down among her people primarily. She wore only black for the next 40 years of her life that she lived. It is said that she told servants and those around her that she did not want to hear anyone laugh in her presence. And where it begins to get a little strange was the way in which she had a place set at the dinner table every night for Albert. And the fact that Albert's valet stayed in the castle employment with the singular job, as I could understand it, of setting out Albert's uniform in his bedroom the next morning, which, of course, he would never wear. For decades, people in England felt they had rather lost their queen's attention and focus and interest. Those close to her said that any time she made a state decision, she would repeat to herself, I am sure this is what Albert would have me do. Now, we would not want to mock a wife's love for her husband. That was commendable. But at the same time, here was a woman so consumed for the entire second half of her life with a wound of grief that she did not allow to heal, that it became unhealthy for her and everyone around her. Seeing something like that makes me think, how well do we manage our grief? But maybe a more specific question, how well do we deal with the departure of a Christian from this life? One who is secure in hope of Christ. Can we be sure that this is a time that testimony is given to the gospel and to resurrection hope? When we plan a service, when we conduct ourselves in the loss of such a person, is there a different note from the crushing sorrow and hopelessness that so many people have who have no effectual hope and prove it at the time when they do lose a loved one. Isaiah 38, 18 has an interesting little prayer to God when Isaiah says, the grave cannot praise you, the dead do not sing your praises, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. But he said, the living, the living will praise you as I am doing now, and fathers will tell their children about your faithfulness. You'll probably find this an unusual sermon in the sense today that it's based on one verse of Psalm 116, which I'm going to hopefully help you understand. But springboarding from that one verse, I want to ask us to think about how we act 
in the face of the departure of Christian loved ones from this world? How do we show the fact to the world that our merciful God cherishes the homecoming of one of his children? Well, first of all, let's look at this psalm. I'm not going to spend a long time on it, but I do want to help you get a correct view of it, I hope. Psalm 116, verse 15, serves to me as a window revealing God's view of a believer's death. How does God look upon the death of a believer? It's a very personal prayer, this psalm. We don't know the author's name, but he prays in a most personal way. There's a pronoun, I, my, me, in almost every single verse of the psalm. We don't know what the sickness was that this individual had, but it was something very serious. He said, the cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came on me. I was overcome. I was at the brink. I thought I was going to die, is what this man is saying. Whatever was wrong with him, it was very serious. And he cried out in the midst of this, Oh, Lord, save me. And he was able to come at a later time and write a song like this, a song of thanksgiving. God heard me. He brought me back. He healed me from the very brink of the grave. Now, since the man is saying, for example, in verse 9, I have more time to walk in the land of the living, you would wonder how exactly does verse 15 fit in the midst of this psalm? In fact, It almost seems that it doesn't. It seems like it was patched in there somehow. The sentence, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. The man didn't die, and no one else. He's not talking about anyone else's specific death either. Why in the midst of giving thanks for the Lord healing him from a very serious disease does he say this? Well, I will tell you what you'll read in most of the commentators, and I think they're correct that the man is saying, look, the Lord took me right out to the edge of life. And I looked over the edge and saw what was there. And I realized what was there was not just the grim monster death in a contest for my body trying to wrestle it away from the Lord. You know how people characterize death as just fate. They say, oh, well, when your number's up, you'll die. That's it. You know, if your number's called... It's your turn. This man says, no, no, no. I looked into the face of death, and the face I saw wasn't a monster. It was my God. And I now know as a believer in this God, as one who trusts in Him for resurrection power, that if He would have taken me, that would have been an event managed by Him timed by him, superintended by him in his wonderful, careful love for me because he cherishes me. He learned through almost dying that if he had died or when he does die, his death would be precious to a God who has this wonderful care for every one of his true children of faith. And so out of this near-death experience, the man got a remarkable assurance. Certainly he understood he's going to die someday. He didn't think he was, you know, turned immortal from this experience that he never would die. 
But next time it would be approached completely differently. When the Lord's ready to take me, I know it's just going to be getting gathered into his embrace. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He didn't take me this time. He wasn't ready. But I looked, I saw his face, and I understood that he would be like this prodigal father of the prodigal son that we know so well from Jesus' New Testament parable, welcoming his son, gathering him in, pouring upon him his welcoming presence and saying, welcome back, precious son. The concept that's here in this one verse is very much like what Jesus spoke in Matthew 10 when he told disciples that no sparrow dies without the father noticing it. Notice the the bird he chose. He didn't say golden eagle. He didn't say owl or, you know, some really interesting bird, cardinal. He said sparrow, a gray, brown, uninteresting little bird. There are millions of them, and they don't seem to count. They might as well be mosquitoes or insects, but not a sparrow falls, but that my father sees it, Jesus taught. And then Jesus said, how much more value are you, my disciples, than many, many, many sparrows. In other words, how could our life or our death escape our Father's full attention and compassionate involvement and planning and safekeeping? It's the same as Jesus was saying in John ten twenty eight. He said, I give my sheep eternal life, and no one snatches them out of my hand. In other words, when if they were to leave my hand, it would only be that I would let them go. Nobody's going to take them away from me. And no one can take them from my Father's hand, he said. If this one is mine, the timing of their death belongs to the Father, and it will be his blessed event, his welcome home. When you come to know this, as this man came to know it through almost dying, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, you live differently from that time on. And that's where I want to go the rest of our time this morning. I want to completely change gears now and leave the psalm behind with that understanding of it. And I want to ask you to think about the ways in which we say farewell in this world through funerals or what have you to believers who die. And I first would have you think about that, of how that was done in biblical history just briefly, a biblical history of believers' funerals. I had to do a little research on this. I wouldn't have known the answer last week if you said, where's the first recorded funeral in the Bible? Well, I think the answer would be Genesis 23, when we see Abraham mourning for his dear wife, Sarah, Remember, he was a stranger and a pilgrim. God called him into a land. He didn't own the land yet, even though he'd been given the promise of this great land is going to belong to your your heirs, your, your many descendants. Abraham didn't own any land at that time. And he wanted a little plot to bury Sarah in, and he insisted on buying it. The man said, oh, you can have it. No, I have to buy it. And he bought some ground near Hebron that included a cave at a place called Machpelah near the trees of Mamre. And there he buried his beloved wife. Later on, Abraham himself was buried there, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Rachel, then Leah, all buried in that one place. 
A little later on comes another funeral when Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Jacob, too, mourned for this wife whom he loved. And it says he erected a monument stone, a memorial stone to her. I thought to myself, my goodness, think of the industry he spawned. You know, the whole uh, cemetery marker business started in Genesis thirty-five twenty, a memorial stone to his beloved wife. And then at the end of Genesis, you read of Jacob dying at first spreading blessing on all of his many sons in kind of a last will and testament fashion and pleading that he be buried with his forefathers, which he was. Then Joseph died and was embalmed and buried in Egypt. And, and he said, don't leave me here. He uh, prophetically foresaw that the Israelites were going up. They weren't going to stay in Egypt forever. He said, when you go, take my bones. And they did a couple generations later. Well, you come to the New Testament era and you find reverent burial of the dead in various fashions. Certainly we're informed by what was done with the body of Jesus. Stephen, after his martyrdom, was carefully buried by other disciples. We only read of burial. We don't read of cremation. We also don't read of any forbidding or, or uh, you know, kind of casting a bad complexion on cremation. It just isn't done. Burial came rather soon. It had to in a hot climate. They did not embalm bodies then. You say, what about all that winding of cloth and 75 pounds of spices around Jesus' body? That was not embalming. It was simply creating pleasant fragrance and smell for a decaying body, which smells very bad if not so treated. And they intended to visit it and come and pray at the tomb and wanted a more pleasant experience. They, they didn't think they had to keep or hold on to a body distinctly preserved in order to believe that God would raise them one day. In fact, the practice was very common in New Testament days. They fully expected to come back to the tomb someday when there were only bones left, and they would collect the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary. Archaeologists have found these. In this current day, you can find ossuaries of bones reverently preserved. They believed in the resurrection. They grieved They weren't ashamed to cry. You read of Jesus coming to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and bursting into tears at his own sorrow for that death. What you don't read is any out-of-control wailing scenes like you see on TV today in parts of the Middle East. It doesn't seem that that kind of scene was practiced in biblical time. They drew apart. They treated it with reverence, with dignity, with tears as they said goodbye to a person of faith. Well, what's this all about? Why am I emphasizing this? I want to build on what was done in the Scriptures. I want to build on the fact that the homegoing of a believer is precious in the sight of the Lord and make some practical, very practical observations for you that we might think about today. And I'm going to do that by asking a question that probably has an obvious answer. The question is stated this way, should our goal in saying farewell to a Christian be life celebration or Christ exaltation? There's quite a difference. I was eating lunch in a restaurant in the area a number of years ago, probably eight or nine years ago, eating with a pastor friend, 
And we both were conscious of a discussion going on in the next booth, not because we were trying to eavesdrop. The folks were speaking quite loudly. And they were speaking, obviously, about a family funeral that must have just occurred not long before. And one man was fairly agitated, a man about my age, and he was expressing his dissatisfaction, especially with the minister at the funeral. Because evidently, to him, his dad, who the funeral was for, had not gotten enough praise and glory at his own funeral. And I'm not going to tell you everything this, the fellow said. One particularly memorable part included profanities. But uh, he said, I sure would like to have heard more about Dad and his wonderful life and not just all that Bible mumbo-jumbo. Well, when I heard that, I, I, I almost wanted to look to see if I had ever met these people because they could have been talking about me. I wanted to kind of slide down in the booth and hope that they didn't say, oh, that's the preacher in the next booth. Well, it wasn't me as far as I know. But it could have been because what he was complaining about was a kind of emphasis that I'm certainly guilty of. I'm sure you've noticed that the funeral industry today, and let me speak with absolute respect for folks in that industry who are hardworking, very dedicated people, have taken on an interesting trend in their marketing. The marketing I refer to is the fact that the word funeral has almost disappeared. Have you noticed this? You are invited to John Jones' life celebration. Now, isn't that positive sounding? Funeral sounds kind of dull. Negative. What's a life celebration, I ask? And I'm going to be the descending voice in our society that says I'm a little troubled about this trend. I wouldn't be if what they were saying is come to the celebration of the life of the living God who through God's grace in Jesus Christ came to be resident in the life of John Jones. Come and celebrate the life of God from the lifetime of John Jones. I'd say, well, great, let's do it. But I know what's being said, and that's not it. Most of what is meant is come and celebrate the wonderful life of John Jones. You know, I smile a little bit when folks ask me, and I get asked this frequently in one form or another by some of you, so maybe the fact that I confront it here will mean I'm not asked it much again. But, but it'd be good that, that I just emphasize this, because you will come to me when, when we're involved in planning a funeral service or a memorial service, and and often we've, we've kind of mapped it all out, and one of the last things you will say to me is, now, Pastor, I want you to realize I'm going to have unsaved relatives at this funeral. Make sure that the gospel's in this service, as if I would forget it. I mean, I want to put you at ease. The gospel of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is going to be there because there's really nothing else important to talk about. I'm the preacher that those guys were talking about in the restaurant. The secondary emphasis is going to be on the good life and accomplishments and fraternal organizations and philanthropic endeavors and wonderful character of the individual we're saying farewell to. The primary emphasis is going to be on Christ in him, Christ in her. Think with me about some of the practical considerations that make that happen. How do we honor God and make Christian hope vibrantly clear to people who are present. 
a few practical things to close with today. One essential item is planning. You know, our church has a, and this is an advertisement, I guess. Our church has a funeral prearrangement form. We devised it a few years ago. It's several pages in length. We made it available. We need to make it available again, I think. You can return this with, with wishes and desires that you have about what we should do at the last service when we as a church say farewell to your mortal part. Now, we have more than 1,000 members in this congregation, and around 50 or 60 of you have said, I have an interest in letting you have that information. That seems a little disproportionate. I'd sure like more of you to think about this. And whether you fill out our form or not, you need to communicate this with somebody, whoever it's going to be, a son or a daughter, a younger relative, who's going to have responsibility for these things when you're gone? A Christian good friend who's going to be in the planning of this thing? Your pastor? Include us in the planning if you want the time when we say farewell to you to be a time that glorifies Christ. Now, there's some key decisions, and let's talk about a few of these things. One of them is to choose, do you have a traditional funeral or do you have a private burial, and a memorial service. Well, to most people, it's six of one or half a dozen of another, and I'm certainly not going to tell you that one is right and the other is wrong. They're not. What do I mean by traditional funeral? I mean a service that occurs, hopefully, in the church or at a funeral home, either one, and then is followed by a burial service at a cemetery. That's the traditional way. That's what most of you know when you talk about a funeral. It, it deals with everything in one Stage, move from worship service to burial. Go home. Well, I will tell you as a pastor with a lot of experience, my preferences lie in a little bit in the other direction. And I don't give you a theological reason or a biblical reason, only a preference. To have that graveside burial service be done by people you choose to have there, family, invited friends, you know, that's the hard thing. That's where all the hard emotion is. That's the hard goodbye. And I feel strongly, after seeing many times, that if you would do that first and then come, either later in the same day or maybe even another day if it's more convenient, have your memorial service when you've done the hard goodbye and you can come and focus on the truths of the Scripture and on resurrection hope. That's what you're going to do when you say goodbye to me anyway. So be ready for it. You can choose, but think about it. Think about it and talk your plan over with someone. You know, another issue of decision is some people have to decide, is there going to be a viewing of my body? Well, some folks, some folks have a knee-jerk reaction to that. They say, I don't want anybody viewing my corpse. No way, no how, not going to happen. Closed casket. If that's what you choose, that's fine. That's your right. I, what, I, what troubles me a little is some Christians who almost act as if it's unspiritual to have the viewing of a body. I really don't think you can argue that very easily. And there is, in fact, a pretty strong psychological circumstance of closure for people. You know, you might be acting very selfishly if you say, well, I don't want anybody seeing me when I'm dead. Well, you know what? It might actually be necessary and helpful for those who love you best, to view that body. It's not a pleasant thing, but it helps people. 
it helps people walk through the grieving process to see that reality. You might think about that. We do recommend, if we're going to have a service in the church, we like to have the casket closed by the time it comes to the church. Then our focus is on the Lord. Here's another thing, another decision to think about. If you're planning a funeral or a memorial service, one of the biggest issues that will decide which way the service tips, let's say, to the human side or the spiritual side will be who else besides the preacher is going to speak. Who's going to give any kind of a eulogy or a personal remembrance or a word of testimony about you? Oh, some people say, nobody. I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want people praising me. Well, it's good if you're saying you don't want to be praised, but the basic idea of a eulogy or a lament, I think, is actually a biblical thing to do. There are examples of the departed folks of faith being given biblical eulogies in Scripture or tributes in either a general or a specific way. In a general way, you could read Psalm 1, for example, giving attributes of a godly man and how he benefits people all around him. Proverbs 31, a godly woman. It's that kind of thing that we can speak with profit when someone has passed away and had a life of of faith and fruitfulness and good works in the Holy Spirit. I will tell you something you'll tangle with me on. Get ready. I'm not right or wrong, but you'll tangle with me if you come and say, Pastor, I want the open microphone. I want the whole town to be invited to give remembrances. I'm going to try to discourage you. I might lose, but I'm going to try. I think that that more services go wrong at this point than anywhere else. More negatives develop. When people are just invited and spout off the first thing they, they might think of to say, what you need is a few people of faith that you would consider in advance and say, here's someone who I think has balance and maturity and can speak about Christ in my life. Music, of course, is an element of a farewell to someone. It needs to be planned. It shouldn't just be sentimental or emotional. It should have biblical strength to it and a biblical message. We've certainly got people here who can help you work on that. The question is whether you've ever thought through these issues. Do you think this is a a macabre subject that you just don't want to focus on? I don't understand that if you're a Christian. You know, if you're a person not of faith in Christ, then I do understand. You don't want to think about all this. You want to put it out of mind. But if you're a believer in Christ, I ask you, how old will you need to be before you do start making these decisions? Or are you just going to have somebody else decide for you? Put some things on paper. Put them in the hands of someone you trust. Someone younger, by the way, who you trust. To have it, who will follow through and help us honor the Lord. We truly do not sorrow as those who have no hope. And it really is possible to have Christ-based assurance and a holy joy of resurrection anticipation threaded through the ways in which we say farewell to Christian believers. C.S. Lewis actually died on the same day John F. Kennedy was assassinated, November 1963. So nobody noticed his death. There was too much other news that day. About five months before Lewis died, he was a great letter writer. He wrote a letter to a Christian woman. He knew she was a believer. That's important when you hear what he said. 
This woman expected she was dying and was fearful about it and expressed her fears to C.S. Lewis. Here's some of what he wrote. He said, Dear lady, can you not see death as a friend and a deliverer? You belong to Christ, so what is there to fear? Has this world been so kind to you that you would leave it with great regret? There are better things ahead for us than anything we leave behind. And then further he said, Our Lord tells us, Peace, my child. I will catch you on the other side. Do you trust me so little? And Lewis signed that letter. The sentence he wrote before his signature was this. One who is like you, a tired traveler, near the journey's end. As Christians, are we taking our stand on Psalm 116, 15, believing that our death is timed and understood and planned? No accident. It's precious in the sight of the Lord to whom we belong. And that, therefore, being true, the Lord has planned that hour. He anticipates it with joy. There's a safe passage for us forged in the bonds of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the firstborn from the dead. How that changes everything. Everything is different because of that. i close with a little portion of a poem from Calvin Miller, a contemporary writer today. Here's what Miller said in just four lines. Holy Father, Let me now depart, for living is such a temporary art. Dying is but getting dressed for God. Our graves are merely doorways cut in sod. May that be true for you, true for us, as we sorrow as those who do have true hope in Jesus Christ. Father, help us to think on these things and to plan for these things and to witness to these things even when our own life and our own words are no longer there that we can speak. May our life be able to bear a testimony and say, Christ is my all in all, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Amen.